right. My, my name is Jackie Ferno. I've been um, on a bit of a trip, which took me seven years on a motorcycle. Um, it's an Enfield 500cc bullet. What is it about change that scares humans so much? If you think about it, everything that ever came to you that you consider to be good right now came to you through a change. Whether it's a person you're married to, or you're going out with, or you live with, or a job that you love, or a career. Some sort of change had to make that happen. Something had to change in your life. Yet most of us go through our entire lives hoping that nothing changes. Why do we fear it so much when there's so much opportunity in it? There's so much excitement in it. Really, the essence of life, the real juice, is change. But usually, we begrudgingly accept change. And then only afterwards, we realize just how fantastic it was. My marriage had fallen apart, and the children had grown up and left home. And I thought, what shall I do now? Um, and so I, I just went on a whim. I, I got a flight to Bangkok and stayed backpacking for a year in Asia. Well, Jackie Furneaux probably wasn't looking for change either, but you can hear in her story that change was probably the best thing that ever happened to her and completely changed her life for the better. It's a great story. After that, we're going to talk with Nate Hudson, who's out riding across the United States in an effort to raise awareness for motorcycle safety. Nate has some startling statistics that's, well, you're really going to be shocked when you hear it. And what's Nate trying to achieve in all of this? Well, change. I'm Jim Martin, and this is Adventure Rider Radio. This episode of Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And Audible. Audible is offering our listeners, that's you, a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash ARR. And of course, the ARR is Adventure Rider Radio. You choose from over 180,000 audio programs, download a free title and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash ARR. That's audibletrial.com forward slash ARR and get started today. Hi everybody, this is Ted Simon. Um, I'm on Adventure Rider Radio. I'm very happy to be here. I'm at Jupitalia.com and uh, I wrote Jupiter's Travels. My, my name is Jackie Furno. I've been um, on a bit of a trip, 
which took me seven years on a motorcycle. Um, it's an Enfield 500cc bullet. So, Jackie, let's start off before you went on your trip. And what was life like for you before you started this wild travel that you're doing now? Well, I think I was a, a pretty normal um, person. I did um, reasonably well at school, not massively well. I got enough qualifications to, to go into nursing. And I trained at the Bristol Royal Infirmary and got married had two children, moved around the country a bit with my husband's job, fitted in where I could, doing all sorts of nursing jobs to to help pay the bills. Um, and then things went wrong with my marriage. That came to an end after 20 pretty good years. And then I was left thinking, oh, what do I do now? So at this point, then, life has changed by force, really. I mean, you're forced into this change, and that sort of gets you looking around, I guess, at the at the opportunities or what can you do. Is that what got you on travel? It is, really. I didn't know what else to do with myself. Um, I really didn't know what else to do. So uh, I went to a, a travel agent called Trail Finders, and I went in there one day, and spoke to uh, one of the uh, assistants, and I said, please don't let me out of here until I've booked myself a trip somewhere. <laughs> That's a customer that, this is a customer they're dying to have come in. <laughs> you, yeah, you were a dream. Uh, I did, and I'll never forget her. Her name is Abigail Hartley, and if she ever listens to this, which I hope she does, um, a big thank you to her. Uh, so I said, lock, lock the doors, don't let me out, um, because it, it took every bit of my courage to go into that, that shop. And uh, I came out uh, about an hour later. Um, we, we'd cried together. She said, you're doing a Shirley Valentine, aren't you? And uh, I was, and uh, I was sort of escaping, but escaping from I didn't know what and I didn't know what I was going to at all it was just desperation that drove me away and um, I really really enjoyed backpacking and I enjoyed traveling and seeing what it was like in Asia so the trip that you took was it was a backpacking trip now was this a like a like um, a package tour that you took or was this just a ticket to an airport it was a bit of a package tour. Um, one of my main reasons for going was because as a health visitor in Stoke-on-Trent, I had a, a caseload, which was, um, I had a, a, a great many people from Pakistani, ba Pakistani background on my caseload. And I often wondered what it was like there. And that was my main reason for wanting to, to go there in particular. And um, Abigail said to me, well, that might be a bit much to start with. Why don't you start somewhere like um, Bangkok, Thailand, which is a nice country to sort of settle into traveling. And she insisted on my booking my first three nights away uh, so that I wasn't sort of just left at the airport <laughs> wandering around not knowing what to do. So she insisted that I book myself into a hotel in Bangkok. And after that, um, I went to the usual Kosan Road where all the backpackers go and well near the Kosan Road and stayed there until I felt able to emerge and, uh, and start getting on trains and buses and things. And when you were backpacking, did you get to remote places or were you backpacking through, you know, towns and cities? Oh, I went to some pretty remote places. I was very lucky to meet uh, a Swiss 
a backpacker called uh, Christine and she was the same age as my daughters really and uh, we, we piled up together and she'd already been backpacking for about six months. She'd been to Australia and New Zealand and had arrived in Thailand and so she took me under her wing really and taught me how to backpack. I'm very grateful to her too. So we went off to Laos nearly straight away and and then on the way we picked up a, a New Zealand woman who was in her 70s, a diabetic and so the three of us set off. There was Christine about 25, um, me at 48 and um, Margaret at 72 I think she was and we did look a strange bunch but uh, we had a great time all together until we got to Laos and because the electricity supply was uh, rather variable Margaret couldn't come with us because she had to keep her insulin cool and uh, in a in a bucket an ice bucket which uh, she, she had to have regular supplies of ice of course so uh, the, the two of us just carried on and we went all over the place. We spent, I think, uh, two months in Laos and then went on to Vietnam. And then I was able to go off on my own. Now, what was it like to, I mean, I realize you went on this trip on your own, but you've met up with some other people, you've, you've hung out, you've made good friends. And now you're, you're sort of about to really take your first big step on your own. What was that like? It was, it was scary to start with. But And that was another big jump in my confidence level because um, I had to find my own accommodation. There wasn't anyone else to ask, well, do you think this place is all right? And to bargain because I had to get used to bargaining. And in the end, it was I was only on my own for about a week before an Australian girl said, oh, I'm a bit scared. Can I travel with you for a bit? So all of a sudden, I was the I was the experienced one showing somebody else how to backpack. <laughs> so that was... That was rather nice. That was Sally, and we had a laugh together. And that's that was my first time when I got on a motorbike in in a foreign country. Um, I hired a motorbike and put Sally on the back, and off we went um, around Vietnam for a, a day or two. You spent a year backpacking before you returned home, uh, and rather restless at that point. But while you were on this one-year backpacking trip, you did stumble into someone who really may not have made a, a huge impact uh, at the time, but but certainly got you thinking. And that was someone traveling by motorcycle. Yes, by this time it was about six or nine, eight, no, six, seven, eight months into my trip, and. No, it was nine months, that's right, it was in the March. And I was in Rajasthan in uh, Jaisalmer in India. And I had decided I was going to have a camel trip in the desert, the Tar Desert between India and Pakistan. And I got some brochures and I'd just gone to a restaurant outside the city because it's a, a walled city, like it's like a sandcastle in the desert, Jason here. And I decided to get away from the touristy places and have um, lunch and browse over these uh, leaflets. And as I walked in, a, a chap on a motorbike pulled up and he, he was very unusual. He was, he was a big bloke and he was riding a, a funny old motorbike I'd never seen before because I'd always had Japanese bikes and this didn't look like anything I'd ever seen before and uh, so I thought well, I wonder if he wants to talk about it and so I asked him went into the restaurant that he'd gone into and I said do you want to be on your own or do you mind me talking to you about your bike and your, your travels and where you're from and he said no join me anyway we spent 
um, about four days together. He he booked in at the, the same hotel I was booked in. And uh, at the end of that um, day, he said, well, look, why don't you hop on the back of my motorbike and forget the camel, we'll go, uh, we'll go into the desert on my bike. So at that stage, India had already worked its magic on me. And that, after a while in India, nothing is unusual. And you know, the bizarre is normal. And so I thought, yeah, why not? And so off I did. I, I put, we loaded up all my stuff onto his bike and me. And off we went into the desert together for four days, camping and sleeping under the stars and doing just the sort of adventure traveling that I like to do. And that, that to me was just heavenly. But we had to part after four days because he, his visa was running out for India and he was on his way to Pakistan. And my younger daughter, Abby, uh, was coming to India to meet me in um, Mumbai. And so I had uh, had to get the train down to Mumbai to meet her. Now, was was this connection that you guys made there, was it something that you felt was going to last? Were you, were you planning on, you know, meeting up down the road or was it just sort of, you know, take care and we'll maybe bump into each other again? It, it was not long-lasting at all. We, um, I had already realized that a lot of the people you meet when you're backpacking are people that you wish you'd met years ago and would like to keep friends with forever. But everybody's going their own different way. And I really didn't think it was going to go anywhere. And we said goodbye. We, did, we didn't even exchange email addresses. We exchanged postal addresses. Not quite sure why, because I don't think either of us felt that we would never see each other again. And uh, we said goodbye. Um, we'd had a lovely time together. And I didn't expect to ever see him again. Now, clearly, I want to talk more about this guy in the story. But first, just tell us quickly, so where did you end up backpacking to? What, what, what Did you end up getting to Pakistan? Yes, I did. Yes. It, um, I, I, um, I went from Thailand with Christine to, to Laos and then Vietnam with Sally and then teamed up with a, a Dutch girl in Cambodia and then back into Thailand. And then I was on my own uh, through Malaysia. And I went to um, Sumatra in Indonesia and then back into Malaysia. And then, then I flew to Karachi from Singapore. And then you find yourself back home. And now you've come back home somewhat transformed, I assume, because you're this independent traveler. So you could have or probably should have, or at least what you'd planned before you left, you would have went home and you would have went back to work. But what happened? Well, I didn't have a home to go back to because um, my husband and I had split up and he did the sensible thing and um, bought a, a new a, a house for himself. And um, I spent a lot of my money traveling. So when I came back, I lived with my brother to start with and then I moved in with my very elderly mother, which worked out quite well. And as for going back to health visiting, I did go and visit all my former colleagues who I was very fond of and had kept in touch with. But I walked into the office where I'd worked and I saw my old filing cabinet and my desk and my chair, which of course somebody else was, was using now. Somebody else had had my job. And I thought, I don't think I can do this anymore. And so I never went back. Why couldn't you do it? Travelling had changed me. And it's difficult to say how, 
but I, I couldn't be that person anymore. I was, it, it's, it's a bit cliche, isn't it, to say I was a different person traveling had changed me, but my eyes had been opened and, oh, I was just hungry for, hungry for more, hungry for more experience. And I'd, I didn't have to clock watch anymore and I didn't have to answer to anybody anymore. I was my own boss now, even if I didn't have any money or a job. And um, I was able to, I was able to survive on, on the savings I still had. And uh, I'd given a lot of my money away to a very good friend of mine who was starting a business and the business was doing well. And I, I worked, uh, it was a backpackers hostel in Bristol and I worked as a manager there and I, I earned enough to keep ticking over and uh, I was I was quite enjoying life being transient again I was being transient but in the same place if you get my meaning I was doing this here and earning a bit of money there looking after my mother visiting friends and um, really trying to think well crumbs what should I do now I'm back in the land where Things don't go like they do in Asia. You really have to have a job here and settle down. And it was that settling down thing that when I went back into my office, uh, the, the clinic I worked at as a health visitor, that I thought, no, I can't do this. This is too much like settling down. So I continued a sort of fairly haphazard life. It's interesting because you really sort of had a life that most people would think of. That's what you're supposed to do. You know, you're supposed to be married and have kids. And, and even if hmm. that isn't together anymore, I mean, you've got your job and you've got a good job and a, a job you know well and you're comfortable and, and um, secure at. I think that's really a big thing. And then just one year on the road changes you. You come back and you realize that you can't even do it. I mean, that, that's an interesting transition. Yes, I think I realized that I didn't want security I didn't want that um, that um, routine. I didn't. I wanted life to be exciting and and a little bit edgy and not knowing what's happening next. And the the routine of going to work for nine o'clock, finishing at five, and going home and cooking dinner and you know watching television and doing the things, having two weeks holiday and weekends off. I, I didn't want that anymore. I was, by this time, I was coming up to 50, and I'd done that all my life. I'd always conformed to what women are supposed to conform to, and I didn't want to do that anymore. I'd been let free. <laughs> I, I liked it. Jackie, at this point, you said yourself, you said your, your eyes had been opened. Did you feel at this point that you'd sort of been ripped off up till now, that you sort of took a life that maybe wasn't ideal? No, not at all. Um, I, I really enjoyed my... Uh, I, I loved being a mother very much, and I enjoyed being a wife. I had a very happy marriage. I can't say anything other than that. Um, I enjoyed my career as well. I, I really enjoyed nursing all aspects of it, especially community nursing. I, I found my forte there, I think. So no, no regrets at all. But I, I really enjoyed be, looking forward to something else. I'd done that. And now it was time to enlarge on the traveling. I, I really enjoyed that. And my daughters were really settled and happy. And they seemed to be happy that, uh, that I was 
doing what I wanted to do. And uh, my ex-husband and I were friends, so that was good as well. There was no animosity uh, on, on any side. So I was, I was totally free emotionally, physically, and um, mentally to do anything I wanted to do. And I was just waiting for the next thing to happen. So when my uh, Dutch uh, friend turned up on the doorstep, I was ready to go. Well, and that's what we're going to get to. So you're back, you're um, working with this hostel and, and sort of finding where your life's going. And somebody shows up on your door and lo, it's the, the man that you met and spent four days with riding the motorcycle. And this is really, as far as a motorcycle adventure, this was the turning point for you. Oh, it certainly was. I mean, what a surprise when he, when, uh, he turned up in Bristol. It was an amazing surprise. And uh, when he said, well, why don't you come and travel with me, go back to India, which I loved. I adore India. And uh, why don't you go come back with me? Well, you, you can get your own motorbike there, like mine, the Enfield. And um, we'll travel together. So I thought, yes, I love the sound of that. And by this time, we had got, developed a close relationship, and I was as happy as anything. It, it was like Christmas, all, over, all my Christmases put together ever. <laughs> and then you decide to just do that. You pack up, you head to India, and you buy your own Royal Enfield, um, which mm-hmm. I, I love the Royal Enfield. I think everybody does. Um, but you, you weren't new to motorcycle riding, though, and it's important to point that out. You've been riding for many years. I think you'd, uh, I think you'd mentioned you yes. got your, your motorcycle license in, in your 20s. Um, but before that, you had a dislike for motorcycles. Yes, I did. As a nurse, I, um, I thought they were nasty, dangerous, smelly noisy things and right. uh, which is to be expected he... from your from you know being a nurse uh, i'm sure you see a lot of things i mean you really see the bad of it it's like being an insurance claims business i guess all you see is the bad or mechanic for that matter all he sees is broken down vehicles mm-hmm. or at least when they break but afterwards you manage to to um go for a ride well tell, tell us about that actually about um the, the the hot day where you found the the motorcycle was a relief yes well one day my my husband had a Honda 90 that he used to go from home to the office in the city in Bristol, and he came home one day to find me languishing in the back garden with two small children trying to keep cool, and he suggested I have a ride on um, the the Honda around the back streets just to just to cool off, and I thought well all right then I'll try this anything is better than just being this hot and sticky gosh it was very hot so off I went he showed me how to go faster and how to stop and I I went round and I was gone for about half an hour I suppose and by the time I came back I was hooked that was it I had to I had to take this further and you ended up getting your your full motorcycle license then going through various bikes yes I did my my husband's brother was a motorcycle instructor and so um he taught me how to ride the bike properly and to pass my test uh which was a great deal simpler then than it is now and uh i had my full license and from then on um had a variety of japanese motorbikes up until i left in fact even when i i left the uk i left my motorbike i had a suzuki 
um, 500 um, cc motorcycle, which I left with a friend whilst I was away. And yes, I, I couldn't imagine life without a motorbike. And then off to India, you uh, so you're you're at least an experienced motorcycle rider. But India, I mean, India is full on, isn't it, for for traffic and for everything? So now you you get on your bike. What was that like? Oh, I, well, my goodness. I was used to Japanese motorbikes, and I'm ashamed to say I didn't even know that you had to change the oil. And I, what I'd do is garage it for the winter, bring it out in the spring, take it to a mechanic and say, can you prepare this for the, the summer, please? And I didn't know what he did, and then I'd ride it for the summer, put it in the garage, and never do anything in the mechanic way at all. But with the Enfield, my goodness, what a shock. Um, I had to change the oil and I had to do all sorts of repairs. And luckily, the um, Dutchman I was traveling with taught me what he knew. And basically, he had to maintain two motorcycles whilst teaching somebody how to do it. <laughs> and it wasn't straightforward at all. Um, I, I wasn't used to this cranky old thing because they, they hadn't changed the design of them since the 50s. It, they're like a, a living dinosaur, if you like. They, they're still making them exactly the same. They have obviously lots of nice new models, but they're still making, as far as I know, they're still making the classic bullet, which hasn't changed in design since the 50s. And, you know, neither, neither is the technology. But... I, I learned how to how to do simple repairs and to maintain it, uh, but it was a shock. I'll tell you that because I, I I didn't know you had to do anything. And now you've learned this. You're riding the streets of India. Where does it take you? All over India, um, and, and the wonderful thing was I developed this uh, liking for utter aimlessness. I just tagged on and I let, um, I call him Hendry because my, my Dutch boyfriend, I let him decide where we were going to go because it was so nice not to have to make any decisions and he seemed to know where to go. We bought maps and we'd look at the map and say, well, let's go here. Okay, that's fine with me. Um, the traffic conditions were very tricky, but on an end field and then India the traffic wasn't fast then I mean we are talking about 2000 the year 2000 I bought mine and then um, it, it was heavy traffic very very heavy traffic but it wasn't fast traffic and so you just tootle along and in, in India the road the road system is quite good there's a lot of just blending in much as water flows few traffic lights few roundabouts and people shuffle in and let you in and you shuffle to the outside when you want to leave. And uh, I, I didn't find it too much of a problem. Were there any real scary points when you were first getting the hang of riding in India? Oh, I dropped the bike a lot. It didn't look shiny and new for very long. But because we weren't going very fast, I didn't really hurt myself until we got to Pakistan. And then what did you do in Pakistan? Well, we were up in the north by Gilgit and we decided that it was getting autumn and that we ought to hurry along and go across the mountains if we were going to get to the other side and go through Iran um, and so we, we took a very narrow track from Gilgit to Chitral 
and on the way um a four-wheel drive vehicle crashed into me and um, i broke my leg you broke your leg yes i had nowhere to go um it was a very narrow track and to my left it was sheer mountain and to my right was a sheer drop down to the river below many many meters below so i just had to wait for the crunch and uh, the crunch came and uh, the my leg my foot was twisted backwards and was facing the wrong way so i thought well that's definitely broken the gen- the gentleman who uh, who got out of the four wheel drive who, who bashed into me said oh don't worry your leg isn't broken <laughs> 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 is, that, is that just a way to pacify you so you can yeah. drive away? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, no, they were very helpful, actually, because um, there I was on the bike with my foot facing the wrong way. And so I very quickly just turned it round so that it was facing the right way, got off the bike and waited to be picked up. And uh, uh, Hendrikus was right behind me and uh, scooped me up and, we, and put me into the back of the four-wheel drive vehicle. And off we went to to um, halfway, well, it was a day's drive for us, a a day's ride for us, but we got there within a few hours in the four-wheel drive vehicle and uh, was dropped off at a little local village hospital where they put a a back slab support on it. And then I was taken by um, a funny ambulance to back to Gilgit where I was admitted to the general hospital. I always wonder about these things when when something like this happens. You know, we hear these stories every now and then. What happens to your bike and all your gear? Who goes and picks this stuff up? Well, the the, the people were absolutely marvellous uh, where the accident happened. Uh, I thought we were in the middle of nowhere, but before long, villagers came out to see what was happening and reassured us that they would take care of both bikes and all our luggage that we couldn't carry, that we wouldn't need with us, like spare parts and the manuals and things like that. So we just took a few things with us, and um, the, the, the local people looked after the bikes, took them to a place of safety, and um, looked after them until uh, Hendrikus could go back and get his and ride it back to uh, Islamabad. I'm very grateful to them for that. You know, you're you're on a long road to recovery here. How did you spend your time? Well, um, after after I got to Gilgit Hospital, which was the nearest town, they said they couldn't mend my leg there. They didn't have the the uh, the right facilities, and so I then had to be flown from Gilgit to Islamabad, where I um, I could get it properly mended and uh, get some uh, good treatment. Um, so, luckily, they didn't put it in a plaster. It was one of the uh, a frame, an external frame with pins going into both sides of the uh, ends of the bone to hold them close so they would heal. And I was able to get about with this device on, and um, I ended up teaching English in Islamabad. I used to go to work from Royal Pindi, where we were staying with a family of actors. <laughs> Literally, I mean, you said family of actors was <laughs> that's not a slight. They were, no, they really were. They were oh. actors. Um, we'd, we'd met them in Gilgit. There was the Silk Route Festival was on, and uh, we got friendly with, with one of them called Bobby, who was a puppeteer. And uh, he said, Well, look, if you're ever in, if you're ever in Royal Pindi, you must pop in and have tea with us. 
So when I'm in, when I arrived in Islamabad, which is next door to Rawalpindi, um, Hendrikas contacted them and said Jackie's had an accident, and he, they said, well, when she's discharged, there's no question about it. You're coming to stay with us. So they were very, very kind indeed. They even changed their squat toilet into a European sit-down toilet for me, especially for me. And we stayed there for about three months and they wouldn't take a penny from us and were the most wonderful hosts. But they, they were actors and it just turned night into day. And when you think of Pakistanis, you don't imagine them being comedy actors usually. It's not the first thing you think about, but they, they were just so funny and, and very, very kind. And again, I'm indebted to them for their kindness and generosity. They were so lovely to me. So uh, that's how I filled my time. I, I was wandering around Islamabad one day and I thought, oh, I wonder if anybody needs anybody to help them speak English. So I wandered into one of the many uh, English language schools there and I met, um, <laughs> I met a lovely woman from Yorkshire. And she said, hey, you must have been sent from heaven. And uh, she said, what are you doing? And I, I told her, well, I just wondered if anybody would like to have conversational English. And she said, well, you can be a teacher. I'm, I'm somebody short. One of my friends can't come. And I said, I, I can't teach. I'm a nurse. And she said, you're English, aren't you? So, uh, yes, yeah, she, she asked me what I was doing the next day. And uh, I, I said, well, nothing. I can start tomorrow. And so the next morning, I started at um, eight o'clock in the morning, teaching a group of four diplomats from Azerbaijan who were in Islamabad because they had um, a consulacy there. And uh, from then on, then I had a woman's group of 12 women from Nepal, Chile, Turkey, Rwanda, Oh, many different countries. And uh, so I was teaching English there. And, and that paid for my fare home because my insurance company stopped paying for my treatment. And so I had to come home to finish the treatment on my leg. But there again, we left the motorbikes in somebody's garage. People were so immensely kind in, in Pakistan. I, I can't express my gratitude enough. And then you stayed at home for a while and you're, you found yourself back on the road. You flew back to Pakistan, got your bike again. Yes. Um, I flew back to the UK and Hendrikas came as well. He went to London to earn some money. And I stayed and looked after my mother, who was getting quite frail at that stage. She was in her 90s. And uh, I worked back at the Backpackers Hostel again until my leg was better. Yes, yeah, so we went back to, we went back to Pakistan and... Hendrikas had been working in London and doing a bit of travelling whilst he was um, in in this part of the world. Uh, we'd sort of lost touch a bit and we went back separately and we weren't sure whether we would be travelling on together or not. I think each of us was waiting to see how things went. Anyway, we did travel on together. We, when we met up again in Pakistan, it was like uh, nothing had happened and we just carried on traveling together throughout Pakistan, but then decided to go into India and uh, keep traveling in an easterly direction because he had it in his mind that he would like to stop and work in New Zealand for a while. So we looked at the atlas and realized that uh, we had to move east, southeast to get to New Zealand. And so we started doing that. I like that. Looked at the atlas to see uh, what direction we have to head in. Boy, what a life. <laughs> <laughs> I know, 
it really was like that. People keep saying to me, well, you must have known where you were going. And I said, no, I was just living the moment, living the dream and didn't really mind where I went. That really was the case. I didn't mind where I went. I loved the life so much of sleeping rough because we slept in the most uh, scummy hotels and we ate street food. We were drinking the water and we were healthy and, and um, we were living on a very basic level. And quite a lot of the time we were sleeping out under the stars, uh, as you can in India and uh, uh, in rural places, and, and having the, having the most wonderful time. It was like I, I really enjoyed being a girl guide when I was younger, and it, it was like that. It was fending for yourself and hand to mouth, day to day stuff, and uh, making do and getting things mended as you do in India. You know, you just you don't just chuck something in a bin and get a new one and with the motorbikes we had to keep mending them and that was what that was what my life was now and I liked it very much. When you started out on this just motorcycle adventure what was the time frame that you gave yourself? Well I thought maybe six months um, because of the age difference between us he was 17 years younger than me and as, as a younger man he, he had he had to make a living uh, in order to maintain the, the traveling that he liked to do. And so he was forever trying to find some means of, of making money. And he used to do this by building websites for people as we went along. But um, I think he, he he got to the stage where he wanted to settle down. And he was getting tired of traveling, whereas I wasn't. I wanted to carry on. And that's the point where you guys head in different directions? Um, it didn't happen until we got to Malaysia and we went through, uh, we went back to India and from India we shipped bikes to Thailand because we couldn't ride them through through Burma or Myanmar. It just wasn't possible. There weren't roads um, from India into Myanmar and also at the time with the military um, rule we wouldn't have been allowed officially. And so tempting as it was to try, we decided to just do the sensible thing and uh, India around the corner. So whilst they were doing that, we flew into Myanmar and uh, had a three week trip. And at what point do you find yourself on your own? Well, in Malaysia, things um, became apparent that he, he wanted to uh, travel quick, more quickly and get to Australia so that he could settle down and I, I wasn't ready to do that and so things weren't as good between us as they had been and he um, we, we, we separated in Malaysia amicably and I was suddenly left on my own with this uh, Enfield that I didn't really think I could cope with on my own but uh, I thought well no I'm not going to give up and so I, I carried on and I, I had a few little trips out from a friend I was staying with. But we'd, we'd made friends with a, an Australian um, man who lived there and I was staying th uh, there. And I, I had little forays out occasionally just to make sure that I could. And I learned how to pick the bike up myself and learned how to do all the basic stuff on my own without 
um, Hendrik is over overseeing me. And I thought, well, I'll just carry on until I can't carry on anymore. And so I left Malaysia. And at that point, things got a bit dicey because I went on a small yacht with um, a yachtsman. And that didn't go very well. And that, that's a story in itself. It was a dangerous situation. We put my, I helped him for two or three months to get his boat ready. He wanted to sail from Malaysia to Australia. And I, I just thought, oh, that would be fantastic. What a lovely way to travel through Indonesia on a boat and stop off at islands and, and have a, a lovely existence uh, on my way to Australia. But it didn't really work out like that. It started going wrong right from the beginning. And no sooner had we set sail after getting the boat just right, it was the wrong time of the year. The engine wasn't strong enough. We were beset by storms all the way down through the Straits of Malacca. We were robbed by um, pirates that uh, came, on, uh, came alongside and demanded all our fuel and food. And then we landed on an island um, to book into Indonesia and we were robbed again and all the tools were taken off the boat plus his passport and various other things. And then we set sail again to Jakarta so that he could get himself a new passport. And on the way we picked up five castaways who had been who had paid some fishermen to take them from Indonesia to Malaysia and they'd been in the water for three days and were clinging to bits of wreckage they'd just been dumped and uh, so we took them to Malaysia and quite honestly by the time by the time we got to Jakarta I thought if I stay on this boat I'm just going to die and he, we weren't getting on at all well, and he he, uh, he had threatened to cut me into little pieces and throw me overboard <laughs> by this stage. <laughs> so, oh, jeez. So I thought, I'm getting off this boat. And, and Indonesia didn't have a very good reputation at, uh, for amongst motorcycles at the time for being particularly um, helpful when it came to documents. And I thought... By this time, my carnet de passage, which is like a passport for the bike, had expired. And I we landed at Jakarta. My, my bike is still in bits on the boat. I'd taken uh, the front wheel off and various bits and pieces that I could take off um, to, make the, to redistribute the weight. And uh, I went straight to the police and threw myself on their mercy, really. And I said, I haven't got any documentation. But as for the bike, it would, uh, it's, it's not legal here, and I, I'm not going on. And they said, well, you can't unload it here, madam. <laughs> and I said, I'm not getting back on that boat, and I'm not leaving my bike on, on that boat either. We're going to have to do something. And so they were, in the end, they were immensely kind again. And they, they, I think they made new rules for me so that I could actually take my bike off the boat. And they, they made out some documents so that I would have free, trouble-free passage through Indonesia and, 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 and onwards. So uh, that's what I did. And immigration were very helpful. Customs were uh, very helpful. And the police were just marvellous. And I had official letters from the top dogs in each of those departments to... Uh, to have free reign in Indonesia until I, uh, until I reached the border with uh, East Timor eventually.
out of adversity and perseverance, your trip actually becomes much better. <laughs> well, yes, it did. It did for ages. And riding through Indonesia was absolutely lovely. Java was just gorgeous. And of course, I, I'd, I'd had this horrendous journey on this boat for several weeks and I was really just very glad to be alive and joyously went through Java and Bali of course it's such a joyous place on its own let alone if you've had a difficult journey to get there and and from there I went on to um, East Timor and that was uh, a bit scary to start with because the United Nations were still there there'd uh, been a bit of trouble and they were still there so I went across the border with them um, to see UN people in uniforms and helicopters flying over and wonder what on earth was happening now. Um, and then from East Timor, um, I shipped to Australia and met up with Hendrikas again. Jackie, while you're doing this and going from country to country, how are you researching the areas you're going to? I, mean, I know you mentioned before just looking at, a, at an atlas and, and figuring you have to head east. Was that the extent of it or were you checking Bolton boards? Were you talking to people on the way? No. Nothing like that. I didn't really do any research. I just thought, well, this country's the next one, and uh, oh, I'll go there. And sort of just went along and managed. And, and border crossings were actually quite quite nice. Um, getting from Indonesia into East Timor was quite difficult, even though I had uh, the right documentation. They, um, they, I, I was left... Um, sitting around for ages they didn't want to let me go I don't think <laughs> but uh, <laughs> eventually I got through but no normally uh, what my my normal way of doing things was to think well I can surely get across other people are going across why can't I and uh, that so that's what I did I didn't anticipate any trouble and largely speaking I didn't have any trouble most people are very helpful as long as you're patient and you have to be very patient and you have to keep your temper even when um, you know you have to go and get dozens of photocopies of the same thing. You just have to keep smiling and be grateful to people and um, eventually get through. Do you think that knowing what you know now, that it's better to travel um, or it, it could be better to travel with less information than more? I think there is something in that, actually. I think uh, we're all so fearful and there, there's all sorts of stories that go around, largely exaggerated stories, especially about how difficult border crossings are. And maybe I've just been lucky, I don't know, but I've, I've never found any trouble at all um, going into countries and uh, you, you, just, you just do it, you just go and uh, perhaps being armed with more, more information would make one more fearful. And then perhaps you don't give off the right attitude. I don't know. I've just sort of been bumbling along, along rather joyously and um, I suppose making the best of things because that's how it's been. Yeah, I think that sometimes when we have too much information, I, I, I know that, for instance, from in my own life, there's some things that I never would have done and I'm glad I did them, but I never would have done them had I known how impossible they were to begin with. <laughs> so sometimes mm -hmm. I think ignorance, and I think a lot of people find that, you know, that, that our ignorance is really, well, ignorance is bliss. That's where it comes from. I, I think so. I think so. And to, and to go naively and trustingly 
is is also quite good. And and to ask people, I have no problem at all now asking anybody anything. In fact, I'm a bit of a joke in the family because if anyone wants to know anything, they say, "Oh, ask Mum or ask Jackie. She'll she'll find out how to get from A to B, or she'll know where how to find somebody that will help." Uh, I've I've always found people to be very helpful. I've, I'm apart from boats, I never had any problem. <laughs> But but that 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 comes to um that that's the traveler, isn't it? You you learn to communicate. Yes, yes, and I I do think an optimistic attitude helps. When you got to Australia, how far into your motorcycle trip were you? I mean, you, the total was seven years. Oh, that's a question. I'm going to have to think about that. Um, the, probably it was 2005. Yes, I was a, probably about, well, say three, three and a half, four years into the trip by then. How does one go on a six-month trip and come back seven years later? Um, momentum. Uh, no expectations and just doing what seems right and feels good. And... Not wanting anything, I, I think not not having a, a desire to achieve anything. I, I've I I I done quite a few quite difficult things on this trip, particularly in Pakistan when with Hendrikas going back. If you don't if you don't mind me going backwards, um, but then in a particular tra- track we went on um, uh, up the Kagan Valley in the Karakoram mountains and Enfields are very heavy bikes and perhaps they're not made for that sort of terrain but we did it and it was very very hard and I felt fell over a great deal and when we got to the top I got a huge sense of achievement and I had the same sense of achievement going through Indonesia um, somebody had told me that there was a beach where I could see turtles come up and lay eggs at night and I really really wanted to see that but they sent me on a shortcut, which would have been fine on foot uh, uh, <laughs> or on a horse. Uh, but they, I, I went down this track and on, on a motorbike, and it was very, very hard indeed. It was through jungle all day and then across a river and then across a, a, a vast expanse of sand to get to this beach. And... And then I saw the turtles, and it was worth it. And it was one of the most wonderful parts of my trip was to see these turtles, a hundred-year-old turtle laying eggs on a beach. And then the next day, being allowed to release um, baby turtles from the nursery into the surf, that to me was just the most wonderful thing. And then the next day, of course, I had to do the trip in reverse. And when I did that, and it was very, very hard, and I dropped the bike a lot, and it took me all day. And when I got to the top, the next night when I found somewhere to stay, I made myself a little certificate, and it said, I, Jacqueline Furneaux, have now proved that I don't have to prove anything to anybody ever again, including myself. <laughs> and I kept that little certificate, and it, it, it was so hard, I just didn't feel I had to prove anything to anybody ever again. And um, and it was sort of that sort of take things as they come. Yes, I can do it, but I don't have to if I don't want to attitude. I think that that's what 
kept me going in that sort of life. I, I, and I just liked it very much. And I didn't have a sense of purpose for the first time in my life either. What was Australia like? Absolutely wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. I arrived from East Timor into Darwin. And in Indonesia is one of the most highly populated, if not the most highly populated country in the world. And when I arrived in Australia, I thought there must have been a neutron bomb been dropped or something because there wasn't anybody. And I arrived at the airport, collected my bike, which had come by ship. And I thought, well, where, where is everyone? And it, it took me quite a long time to... to acclimatized to having no people about and fewer people to um, to speak to but lovely for camping out and very soon Hendrikus and I made, met, met up again and we started off traveling again through Australia living the same sleeping out in hammocks life that we that we had before well he had a hammock I slept on the ground which perhaps I shouldn't have done knowing that there were lots of crocodiles around there afterwards did you have fears or was it ignorance again? You just sort of said, I know there's things out there and I'm not going to worry about it. Uh, I did know there were things out there and I did worry about them and I was very careful. Uh, I didn't want to be eaten by a crocodile. And at, at first I thought, oh, they can't be that bad until I started buying the local newspapers and fairly regularly read reports about people getting taken by crocodiles. And in fact, whilst I was there, I got it pinned, stuck in my diary. Two motorcyclists had stopped at the side of a, a, a pond, which they call a billabong, to wash their uh, cooking pots. And one of them was taken by a crocodile, watched by his travelling companion, who shinned up a tree and stayed up there for two days until somebody came to rescue him because the crocodile came back for him too. And I thought, I do not want this happening to me, thank you very much. And so tempting as it was in all that heat to just, oh, forget it, I'm going to have a dip in this lovely, cool-looking stretch of water. I didn't. No, we didn't. We were very, very careful indeed. Um, we stayed in the Northern Territory, and then I went to Queensland. Oh, and I, I went up um, to Cairns. We had friends in Cairns, and they they put us up for a long time. Because Hendrikus got a job there, and uh, I went exploring up um, up the Gulf, and uh, and we, then we split up, and that was that. I was travelling on my own from then on. I guess at that point, though, it, it didn't bother you as much as it would have uh, when you first started out. No, no, I, I really was very confident by that stage and was able to continue my trip and I shipped my bike then to New Zealand. But uh, I did stay a long time in Australia. It, it, uh, it wasn't an immediate split up. It was, uh, it was quite a while. And during that time, there was a Christmas holiday, and I flew home to see my family, to spend Christmas with my family, and come back again. And, uh, and then I carried on. What are you doing for money all this time? Um, before, when, when I split up with my husband, he um, we... we we sold the house and he bought himself another house and I um, gave all my, lent all my money 
to somebody I hadn't known very long, and he was starting a new business in Bristol called Bristol Backpackers. And he needed some extra money to get it started. He'd had various bank loans, but it wasn't quite enough. And so I was able to lend him the rest. And it was at a time when the interest rates in Britain were very, very high, 6 7%. And I was living in very, very cheap countries. Uh, India, Pakistan, and Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand are all uh, reasonably cheap countries to live in compared with Europe. And so my money was going a long, long way, and I was um, I was able to uh, to live cheaply as we were doing, traveling very in a very frugal way um, all this time. Some people would say that it's foolish to give all your money to somebody that you don't even really know, especially as a as a business investment. But this works out perfect for you that you're you're basically, I guess, living off the interest and a little bit of principal. It's financing your you you the whole way. I mean, I can hear in your story you're saying that you know the people you're with have to do things, especially Hendrik is um, he's having to go and and find work. But you've got that freedom of having the cash that you need to keep yourself going and being very frugal. That, that's going to yes. make a huge difference. Perhaps it was foolish of me at the time, but I have no regrets. And uh, the money, the person I lent the money to, and I are still very good friends. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he, he, he's been very kind to me. And uh, and did it work out? Did you get your money back? Yes, the business did very well. He didn't need the money anymore, and uh, so I, I I got it back at the end of um, my seven years. Good for you! Uh, wow. Yeah, well, it was a, it was a good choice. Well, I just, I just trust that people are, uh, are trustworthy, and he definitely was, is, <laughs> he still is. And, and when I did come back after seven years, he had uh, expanded the business, and he bought um, a, a large Dutch barge in Bristol Harbour, and it was lying there empty whilst it was waiting to be converted into Backpackers Hostel Number Two, and so I lived on that for two and a half years on a boat in Bristol Harbour, which was a good transition for me. Because I was still in my head um, a transient gypsy, and uh, it was good. It was sort of not quite settling down, but almost. And uh, so it was, it was very good. And uh, I enjoyed my time on the boat very much. But now I live in a comfortable flat. Did you end up in Africa? I didn't. Um, I have subsequently ridden the bike down through France and Spain and over to Morocco, which strictly speaking is Africa, but not uh, not Africa as most people uh, think of Africa. No, just the very north part. You just said the bike. You're riding the same bike that you bought. Yes, it's uh, it's downstairs at the moment. I yes, love that. I love that. Sorry, it, 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 it really is, and I've said this before, it just flies in the face of the whole idea, the thinking that we need to have this very expensive bike that's all kitted out with all of our, our Legoland outfit to go traveling. Um, you know, and you bought this bike. Most people would have disposed of it long ago and sort of moved up, sold and sold up. But here you are <laughs> riding the same bike. What keeps you on that old Royal Enfield? Oh, what a good question. Uh, well, it's my only means of transport. I live right in the city centre, and I, uh, a car would be a liability, uh, so I don't need a car. Um, why do I keep the Enfield? Because I look at it, and I've got all the names of the countries it's been through, painted in 
uh, correction fluid on on the battery box and uh, and I look at it and I think well nobody else would want it for a start because it's a it's, it's a rusty old battered no it's not rusty it's a, it's a battered it's a battered old bike and it's got a story to tell and I'm fond of it uh, it's my it's my friend. It represents my freedom and it makes me laugh and I get on it now and I go and visit my daughter Claire who lives in Oxfordshire and her family. I've got two grandchildren and uh, I ride over there. It's a nice three-hour journey through the Cotswolds and it just makes me smile from ear to ear every time I get on it and I just smile. It sounds lovely and it's my bike tell you you're my hero i mean i love this people who keep their bikes so long and and sam manicom is another one tiffany coates i think yes. is, a, is another i i just love that i don't want to give away everything of your trip because i know you're sitting there right now literally in your flat surrounded by you know 16 17 18 diaries that you <laughs> wrote while on your trip and you're putting a book together yes i am um finally it it happened um i had this feeling that Come on, get this book written. And so I started it in, oh, how long ago? About three or four months ago. So I'm going through my diaries and trying to sort out how to fit seven years into one book, which isn't easy. And when do you plan on having that finished? I haven't got a plan. I like it. (laughs) Nothing's changed with you, has it? (laughs) There's just no plan. You're just going to write. I do a talk, and my talk is called Plan? What Plan? I like it. Jackie, what tip would you have for anyone out there considering a trip like yours, or any trip for that matter? Perhaps, having talked to you, uh, I've realized that don't do too much research that you scare yourself to death, and don't take half as much as you think you need, and uh, just go with the right attitude. Uh, People are generally very nice and helpful as I found out and people say to me oh you were brave doing that and I always say no coming back was brave and how about for women in particular oh well it didn't make any difference to me I I don't think it did but then I was older maybe that would make a difference as well but I was treated with great respect everywhere I went but bear in mind I was 48 and not in the first flush of youth when I set out so um, I think in a lot of countries that might have made a difference. I, I really don't know. Having not travelled on a motorbike as a young woman, I don't know what it would be like. Uh, but no, I was, I was treated with great respect and uh, generosity everywhere I went. And in there lies the benefits of ageing. So we can, we can feel good about that. Oh, absolutely. It gets better and better as far as I'm concerned. Yep. Jackie, what is life like for you right now? It's great. I'm really enjoying life. Uh, my life is is perfect. I, I've had this marvellous experience, absolutely. I mean, who could have thought it? I, I have to laugh sometimes. There was me, a mother and a health visitor, um, in a very respectable profession, a very respectable sort of house and everything like that. And then not so not so long after that there i am sleeping under bushes and uh, and dr- <laughs> i have drunk out of puddles in in times of need uh, eating street food and you know and it it just makes me laugh and and now i i've got 
quite a nice standard of living and I've got some excellent friends and I still have a lovely lifestyle uh, and such wonderful memories and, and hopefully a lot more fun to come. Well, that was my next question. What comes next? It, are there more adventures in the works? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Who knows? But I'm ready for anything. Well, we're certainly going to watch for this book when it comes out. And as soon as it does, you're going to have to contact us and we'll get you back on here to talk about the book and, uh, and where people can get it. But meanwhile, where can people find out more about you and your story? Um, I've got a website, um, JackieFerno.com. Um, and also I write for um, a lovely magazine called The Overland Magazine. And if people want to read about some of my travels, it's in it there. There's four in there. There's one coming out soon about Burma. But it's, it's, a, it's a magazine for motorcycle travelers. And uh, it, it's, it's very nice because it, it goes into detail about the sort of people you meet and, you know, the different cultures it's a lovely magazine so people can read about me in there um the riders digest not the readers digest there's a, another magazine called the riders digest which is online and there's a few articles in there um and i'm on facebook if anybody wants to contact me or they can contact me through my website Oh, that's great. And um, the link to the website, of course, will be in our show notes because Jackie Furneau is not um, uh, necessarily written out the uh, the way some people might see it as J-A-C-Q-U-I and Furneau is F-U-R-N-E-A-U-X. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. yeah. So anyway, the, the links will be in our show notes. Jackie, thank you very much. Good luck with your book. And like I said, as soon as it comes out or as soon as you get it done, make sure you call us again. <laughs> thank you very much. I've been speaking with Jackie Furneaux, and you can find out more about Jackie and her travels by visiting her own website, www.jackieferneaux.com. And because of the spelling, I think you best drop by our website and look at the show notes for this show. Our website is www.adventureriderradio.com, and you'll find the links to Jackie's own website and the magazines that she writes for, which you should also have a look at. Coming up next, we're going to talk with rider Nate Hudson from the United States who's out doing a ride around all 50 states right now in the name of safety for you and I. Recently, a representative of Allstate Insurance contacted us about a program they're running. And normally it wouldn't have caught my attention, except that the information that they sent us had some startling data here. And I'm going to read you a line. This is what it says verbatim. Based on data obtained from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, three motorcyclists are killed in multi-vehicle crashes at intersections each day. That's unbelievable. I found that shocking. I mean, it goes on to tell more, but but that's really the crux of it right there. That is unbelievable. So what they're trying to do is they've, they've basically got a motorcyclist that they've hired to ride around the United States and, and get all kinds of press for this to, to raise awareness. He's going to ride around the States. He's going to stop at the different uh, headquarters for the uh, vehicle training programs. And he's going to try and get them to add in some questions on the the regular motor vehicle test, which means if you're just going for a car license, it would have some questions in there to make you more aware of motorcyclists, I guess particularly at intersections, to reduce this incredible rate of three people per day, three bikers, three three people just like you and I. Um, That's just unbelievable. So 
We get a hold of the rider that is lucky enough to be doing this for Allstate. His name is Nate Hudson, and uh, he has his own motorcycle shop um, that he works at regularly, but for this summer anyway, and for uh, uh, 17,000 miles, he's going to be riding for this uh, Allstate's, what they're calling Ride for Awareness. And right now, Nate is on the road. Nate, where have we found you now? I can hear some noise in the background there. You're clearly sitting in a public area. You're on the ride now. Is that correct? Oh, that is correct. Every day, uh, I have no real downtime. I'm always riding uh, throughout this country every day for 111 days that we start out. But um, currently right now, I'm in Richmond, uh, Virginia. I'm at a local restaurant here uh, having some waters and lunch before I I head off uh, south. Nate, what exactly is this program about? What are you doing as you're riding around this this 17,000 miles? Well, the great thing about, you know, this ride is Allstate came up to uh, me about this, you know, Ride for Awareness program. And the whole point of uh, this trip is uh, to hit all 50 state DMV headquarters. And what we're doing there is we're trying to urge them to add a question to their uh, car driver's test, basically bringing awareness to uh, the surroundings of motorcyclists on the road. So when we're talking about awareness, why is this come about? Well, the obvious reason, as we know, is, you know, to promote safety. Um, but not just for motorcyclists, it's for cars, too. Um, cars, uh, one of the biggest statistics that uh, Allstate brought to me is that uh, three motorcyclists are killed at an intersection by a car making a left in front of them. Um, that, to me, just blew me away. And uh, the whole pro uh, point of this program is uh, to bring awareness to not only the motorcyclists, but to the car and how to avoid an accident. Um, and the biggest thing we're trying to say is not to look once for a car, but to look twice. Because, you know, someone could just be having an off day. They could be totally zoned out. Motorcycles are so much smaller than cars that they don't see them and they make a left. And then the motorcyclist, you know, has a collision with them. But also as a rider, what I want to do is uh, pass on the word to, you know, fellow riders that uh, never assume the car sees you. Be ready to stop. So if a car does turn a left in front of you, that you're going to be able to react in a safe amount of time to avoid the accident, too. When you're saying three motorcyclists are killed in a multi-vehicle crash at, at intersections, you're talking every day. Every day in the United States, which is like, it's that's huge, man. That's bizarre. Right? So that really hits home with me. So this whole point of we can go to all 50 states to you know promote this, and if we were able to save like one life this whole campaign, I mean, that would just, that's totally worth it there for me and for all states. I mean, sure. I mean, Allstate obviously wants to reduce claims. You know, that's going to be a, a huge part of it. But, I mean, uh, you know, this is a, a win-win for everyone. Do you think it's going to have an effect? Do you think by going in and, and hand-delivering this to these headquarters, do you think they're going to look at it and say, hey, um, we're going to do something about this? I mean, clearly the spin-off, and I mean, I would push anyone who hears this, you know, tweet about it and, and put it on your Facebook and everything, because obviously the more attention it gets, the more the government's going to have to move on this sort of thing. But what do you see as, as far as a, a, an effect? Do you do you foresee them doing something? You know, that's a great question. And the DMV so far has been like the support. Like they're like open arms, they're excited about it. You know, some of the stops we've already been to already have questions on their tests. Um, so they're they're not even like we're not, they're already doing our job for us. So when we get there, we're just like, you know, giving them the information, but then you know, thanking them for already, you know, applying it to the test. So overall, it's been really, you know, overwhelming the support, not only by, you know, government officials, but by the people surrounding it, too. Like, everyone I tell about this program have been, like, really supportive. They think it's great. And 
to me, it's like it makes it just easier because you know everyone's smiling, so it's easy to just, you know talk, and they just want to know like the journey so far and where I've been and each state and like what I'm looking forward to. So it's it's been actually really great so far. Sometimes these things are obvious to everyone. I mean, most motorcyclists, almost probably every motorcyclist knows that you're going to have to watch that other vehicle. You're going to have to pay attention and make some sort of eye contact, which may not always be possible um, to avoid these collisions. But this is why this is so important that people talk about it on social media, because the more we get it out there, the bigger this the impact of, of something like this, what you're doing on this ride, the more chance we have of getting those questions on the standard uh, motor vehicle test. And I think it's really important because I think a lot of times what it is is with as car drivers especially, and if you're only a car driver, you get used to looking for certain things, and and that's cars. I mean, you don't notice necessarily this, the the uh, telephone poles, you don't know may not notice the the bus stops or a curb or something. All that is sort of off to the side as you focus on cars. And I think unfortunately, motorcycles fall into those categories for many people, so they may even look right at it but not recognize it as something that is a moving object that they have to be aware of. Oh, that's exactly. I, I, I'm with you 100% on that one, too. And that's the, the, uh, the other thing I'm trying to do for this campaign is, like, is tell motorcyclists that. Because when I first started riding, like, I was new to it all. And so I didn't know nearly as much as I know now. So when I see, like, a fellow new rider, I try to tell them, like, never assume that you know, the car sees you and be ready to stop. You know, and then from there, you're able to apply it to when you drive a car. You're way more safe because you're observing your surroundings at all times. You know, because we, as we know as motorcyclists, there is no room for error. <laughs> so if you crash, you're definitely going to get hurt. Yeah. And also with, with the gear people ride with nowadays, I mean, a lot of it's for style and motorcycles painted for style. My, my bike, for instance, is black and white, which is a, a horrible color to be seen. And I've seen photographs on the Internet where you look and they'll, they'll have a photograph. This one in particular I'm thinking of was a motorcycle coming over a bridge and it was modeled sunlight. And you could not see that bike. There's a bike with a headlight on. You could not see that bike. So it's not even just uh, car drivers. It's everyone, you know, to, to be aware and to take the like you said that second look yeah and then the proper gear too you know you know decent you know riding jacket pants boots gloves you know good helmet dot helmet i mean that's just all about safety you know for yourself because uh you know i've gone down and fortunately i've had good gear on so i've been able to like you know put my hands down on my gloves and like skid along the road and that's just all about the importance of good gear too Nate, how did you get chosen for this? I mean, this had to be a, a big deal. I think everybody would want to jump at this. Now, now first, before you answer that, um, you have a motorcycle shop. I do. I have a shop in uh, Long Beach, California. It's a BA Moto for British American Moto. Um, we service, uh, maintain, do builds, restorations, anywhere from vintage uh, Triumphs and BSAs to modern bikes. Um, yeah, so that's what I do for a living uh, before this, you know, 111-day trip across country. And, and how do they choose you? How do they, they come across? They had to have many applicants for this, all kinds of people lining up at the door. How did they end uh, up they, at Nate's door? They did. They just, uh, you know, I got an email from them one day asking if I'd be interested. And I had to make sure it wasn't like a blast email or something like, no, nah, this can't be true, right? <laughs> so then I emailed them back and I got a phone call within 10 minutes and say, hey, you know, we're, you know, we're looking at you as possibly riding cross country. And they told me the details, you know. And for riding opposite all 50 states, it's like, wow, I've, you know, I've not done that. I've only hit 35 states, I think. So, but to do one trip to actually hit all 50 was mind-blowing. Um, so that was one of the big things. And just I got narrowed down to being the guy to do it. And then since then, we've been working really hard about planning out this route, you know, getting all the stops lined up. 
you know, I'm, I'm documenting this whole trip through our Instagram, and then um, that's being uploaded to uh, uh, Allstate's uh, Facebook motorcycle page, as long as their website, which is like allstate.com slash ride, and you'll be able to see like the United States, my route, where I'm at, the photos I've uploaded, um, and then, you know, like I said, I'm trying to document this, so you know, people that don't even ride motorcycles, they can watch this campaign and see, you know, all the different sights and experiences I get a feel from, like, you know, like the humidity. I've been hitting a lot here on the east to, like, you know, I'm going to hit rain eventually, and I'm sure it'll be sunny, great days. And then, you know, just, you know, some days I'll be camping, but, you know, so people can, you know, live this journey, too, and see, like, all the interactions I get to have with people. It's one of the biggest things I'm looking forward to. It's really neat. No matter what you ride, whether you're riding an adventure bike or a street bike or a, a crotch rocket, as I call them, it doesn't matter. Everyone needs to get behind this because we all deal with intersections and we all are at risk here. So it's certainly um, something we should all get behind. What are you riding on this trip? Um, I am riding a 2015 uh, Indian Roadmaster. Uh, the top of the line model that uh, Indian makes it has three bags, heated grips, full fairing. Um, I mean, this thing's dialed in to do uh, all 50 states, so it's it, it, it carries all my gear, my camping gear, my camera gear, and my clothes, and rain gear just in case when that happens, but uh, I can, you know, literally strap everything in this motorcycle, and it's basically my apartment for the next, you know, three and a half months. Well, it's tough to feel sorry for you, Nate, uh, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no matter what you're going through, because it sounds like you got a pretty cozy ride. I've never had a ride like that before. With that big windshield, I mean, do you even need a rain suit? Yeah, the, the, you know, it's still, I mean, there's going to be rough times, so, you know, it's still, I'm very fortunate about this trip and how exciting it is, but the, literally the first time I picked it up, uh, I picked it up in Union, uh, New Jersey. And I got on it, you know, got all my stuff loaded up on it, and I literally just hit the road. And then there's this huge, like, thunder boom, and then it just started dumping on me, like, instantly. I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me right now, really? Is this, like, how my trip's going to be, like, the first second I get on a bike? But, like, I literally got drenched on. So I pulled off the road, and because I didn't have my rain gear yet, it just hadn't arrived. And uh, I just kind of laughed it off, and there's some locals at a car wash, which means their day's over, too, because, like, well, no one's going to wash a car right now. So I was just kind of able to sit back, and, you know, they were smiling, and they were asking me about the bike. So, uh, yeah, you still definitely, definitely get wet on that motorcycle. I mean, this just happens. Rain, rain has a way of getting through the best gear and, and getting you wet somehow. No doubt. Well, Nate, we're behind you, as all the listeners are, I'm sure. You enjoy your ride, and hopefully you're not going to have to deal with too much rain out there. And, and kudos to Allstate for doing this. I think it's just a great thing you're doing. We'll uh, add the links to the show notes. Where can people find out more about you? Um, the biggest thing, I would say, is uh, our personal Instagram. Uh, we have uh, not only this trip we're going to be documenting, but um, you can actually see like you know, our past work we've done on motorcycles. And like I said, we race. You know, we're, we're a shop and we're a club. You know, we're a rider's club. We like to like, ride and camp and promote uh, motorcycling. And so we do it from camping to like, vintage flat track racing to you know, motocrossing. You know, we, just, we do a little bit of everything when it comes to two wheels. So that would be a BA for British American underscore, underscore moto, M-O-T-O. Well, Nate, thanks very much for coming on to Adventure Rider Radio, and you ride safe. Thank you for having me on today. 
I've been speaking with Nate Hudson, who is in the middle of, or at least partway into, his Allstate Insurance Ride for Awareness that started off May 12th, and he's going to be covering about 17,000 miles in that time period, and I think he'll be going into late summer by the time he's done. He's riding a 2015 Indian Roadmaster, and he's living the life. You can find out more about Nate by visiting his website, www.ba-moto.com. And you can follow him on Instagram as well. We'll put the links uh, in the show notes. Just trip on by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and you can find out more information and get the links to all of this and more. This episode of Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting Adventure Rider since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Well, that about wraps up this episode of Adventure Rider Radio. You're going to want to drop back next week, though, where we've got a couple that specialize in travel in the country of Peru. And we're going to talk about all the ins and outs, getting in, getting out, places to see, places to avoid, and a whole lot more. Coming up next week on Adventure Rider Radio. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. But before you do, don't forget to head on over to our website, Drop us a line, go onto the comment page, and if you like what we're doing, drop by the website and click on the donation button. Send us something to help keep the wheels rolling here at Adventure Rider Radio. Now, if you have a business or an event you want to promote on the show, drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and click on the partnering button. Adventure Rider Radio is made possible through Canoe West Media. Special thanks to co-producer Elizabeth Martin. One of the songs you heard today was Chris Zabriskie with Divider. The other one was Brad Sucks with Total Breakdown. You can find links to them on our show notes. Hi, I'm Jason Spafford. And I'm Lisa Morris. And we are Two-Wheeled Nomad, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Woo-hoo.